Welcome to Parents' Rights Now, a production of Parents' Rights in Education, hosted by Suzanne Gallagher. PRE welcomes all students, families, and community members who care about scholastic success for K-12 public school students. Join us by filling out the form on our website. You will find information regarding issues and information about local and state chapters. Hey guys, today is the 18th of March, and we're going to continue our probing deep into this issue, the whole transgender affirming issue pertaining to minors primarily, but anyone who is undergoing treatment, surgical or otherwise, to address their confusion. Now, you know, when you have confusion, it's in your brain. It's emotional, but it's also cerebral. And it doesn't change you to remove body parts or mess with your endocrine system. That's dangerous. It is being proven that those measures are extreme and they're harmful, and especially when it pertains to children. This issue is particularly hot now for Oregonians because of the latest legislative proposal, House Bill 2002, to go full steam ahead with gender-affirming clinics providing mental and physical treatments and surgeries throughout the state and serving anyone, even out-of-state visitors, questioning their biological sex. And it's all on demand at taxpayer expense. The Daily Caller reporter, Laurel Duggan, is doing an amazing job. And recently, on March 11th, she came out with a story about Dr. Susan Bradley, a Canadian psychiatrist and pioneer in child gender dysphoria treatment. Now we're talking about kids here. And she came out against the popular model of affirming children's transgender identities and putting them on puberty blockers, practice she was once involved in. Bradley started a pediatric gender clinic in 1975. Now, that was 48 years ago, guys. She did this to treat children with gender dysphoria. That was the purpose. It is real. Gender dysphoria is real. Now, that is a deep sense of discomfort with one's body and biological sense. At her clinic, she offered a therapy-focused approach. And guess what? Most patients outgrew their feelings of being transgender over time. Around the year 2000, the clinic began prescribing puberty blockers to gender dysphoric children as a way to alleviate their distress a model which has since become widely adopted by medical establishments around the world, including, of course, the United States. Bradley, who is now in her early 80s, expressed regret that the clinic had participated in the administration of puberty blockers for gender dysphoria, which she now believes can cement a child's sense of confusion 
out of which they would likely otherwise grow. And she also expressed concern about the drug side effects. So the point here is most children will outgrow gender dysphoria. Bradley stated, we were wrong. She also said, they're not as reversible as we always thought. And they have longer term effects on kids' growth and development, including making them sterile and quite a number of things affecting their bone growth. The article goes on. While most children who experience gender dysphoria typically grew out of it and came to accept their bodies and gender prior to the widespread implementation of the gender affirmation approach, numerous doctors expressed concerns that puberty blockers made children's temporary gender confusion permanent by solidifying their sense of actually being the opposite sex. Now, this is according to the New York Times. The drugs also prevent the surge in bone density that would normally occur during puberty, with some patients experiencing lifelong bone issues. The FDA also identified six cases where there was a plausible link between GNRH agonists and a condition called pseudotumor cerebri, which is caused by elevated fluid pressure in the brain. Bradley told the Daily Caller her opinions on puberty blockers evolved over time. She said, we thought that it was relatively safe. And endocrinologists said they're reversible, that we didn't have to worry about it. I had this skepticism in the back of my mind all the time that maybe we were actually colluding and not helping them. And I think that's proven correct in that once these kids get started at any age on puberty blockers, Nearly all of them want to continue to go to cross-sex hormones. Bradley opened the Clark Institute of Psychiatry, Child, Youth, and Family Gender Identity Clinic in 1975, and she went on to become the head of child psychiatry at the Hospital for Sick Children and the psychiatrist-in-chief and head of the Division of Child Psychiatry at the University of Toronto. An opinion from someone like Dr. Bradley has enormous potential to influence debate because she is what Cass Sunstein has called a surprising validator, according to Joseph Burgo, who is a psychotherapist and vice director of Genspec. He also went on to say it's human nature to dismiss even well-reasoned arguments and credible evidence from those who are readily identified on the other side as them, say Republicans or well-known transphobes. But Dr. Bradley is a pioneer in the field and politically unaligned. Burgo continued, she does not argue that puberty blockers are never appropriate 
Instead, she urges a cautious exploratory approach to gender distress based upon her decades of experience. And when a professional who might have been expected to align with one side, the affirmative care side, issues a nuanced opinion and urges caution, it can help members of the public not to take sides against her to polarize and dismiss her opinions, but instead to open their minds to alternative points of view. Surprising validators like Dr. Bradley can soften divisions and promote dialogue even more than well-balanced presentations with arguments from both sides can do. Bradley believes transitioning is beneficial for some adults and says some patients consider it the best thing they've ever done for themselves, but that the metrics of success, even in terms of patient satisfaction, are complicated. One of her patients transitioned from female to male, married a woman who had been a childhood friend and seemed happy and satisfied, but later in life pursued a very costly phalloplasty surgery despite appearing very masculine. The patient was never fully satisfied and was always pursuing further bodily improvements according to Bradley. Another patient Bradley worked with transitioned from male to female, but eventually told the psychiatrist he was no longer trans and was in a relationship with another man. This made Bradley question if transitioning was really just about seeking acceptance from some patients. Of course, it's about seeking acceptance because it's all in their head. You guys, this isn't about their body itself. It's about how they see themselves. According to Bradley, it made her realize what we're talking about is acceptance that they need. We all need somebody who loves us. And so it's very complicated. There are people who make this work. But there are an awful lot of people who end up feeling that this hasn't solved their problems with who they are and what they are. The long and short of it is that the decision was made at a time when these kids were just too young to really know how they were going to make this work. And that's not fair. Now, that's a quote from Bradley herself, who established this gender practice 48 years ago. In fact, Bradley chaired the Subcommittee on Gender Dysphoria for the fourth edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, the official manual of the American Psychiatric Association which is used for classifying and diagnosing mental disorders. She led eight other doctors in determining diagnostic guidelines for gender identity disorders. She also produced research along with other clinic doctors showing that 87.8% of boys 
referred to their clinic for gender identity issues eventually desisted, meaning they stopped believing they were actually girls and came to terms with their sex. Okay, I'm going to say that again. 87.8% of boys referred to their clinic for gender identity issues eventually desisted, meaning they stopped believing they were actually girls and came to terms with their sex. Bradley came to believe that most child patients who identified as transgender were actually on the autism spectrum or suffering from borderline personality disorder, which she believes should be classified as part of the autism spectrum. Autistic adolescents are particularly prone to obsessive thinking and body image issues, and they struggle to change their minds once convinced something is true all of which make them more vulnerable to being convinced they are actually the opposite sex and should seek medical interventions such as puberty blockers or hormones. I have an opinion about that statement related to autistic students. It is no secret those students are more prone to be seen by counselors in the public school system and encouraged to follow their instinct to change their sex. It is not uncommon at all. Those kids are vulnerable. Bradley goes on, you have to put yourself in the place of a 12 or 13-year-old who is thinking, this is my way to get normal. These kids are not faring well with the current affirmative approach, and I don't know that kids actually could, given the capacity of a 10 or 12 or even a 14 or 15-year-old, to understand the complexity of the decision that they're making on their long-term sexual and life function. It just doesn't make sense. Well, hallelujah to that, Dr. Bradley. (laughs) Thank you. This is what I and many others have been saying ever since we learned of this going behind parents' backs in the school setting and talking to our children about making this kind of decision at age 10 and even younger. So Susan Bradley retired around 2012 and the clinic shut down several years later amid intense pressure from transgender activists who believed that the clinic, which did not automatically affirm children's gender identity or transgender status, was transphobic. Skepticism of puberty blockers has grown in recent years amid high-profile scandals involving pediatric gender clinics prescribing blockers to halt the healthy puberty of children as young as age 10, with allegedly inadequate psychological screening. Stella O'Malley, psychiatrist and founder of Genspect, an organization that is critical of childhood gender transitions, voiced concerns about the intervention in a previous interview. O'Malley stated, blocking the sexual development of children is a highly authoritarian intervention. Children are asexual, and so they can't understand the impact of impaired sexual functioning. 
We are roughly 10 years into this large-scale experiment. Yes, it's an experiment. Thank you. And already we have reports on issues with cognitive development, bone mineral density, and fertility. All the up-to-date evidence shows that puberty blockers are neither safe nor reversible. Advocates for medical gender transitions for children argue that puberty blockers can diminish the distress a gender dysphoric child experiences as a result of puberty and can reduce the need for later surgeries or hormonal interventions by preventing the acquisition of some traits associated with their biological sex, such as a deep voice in a male patient. Dr. Norman Spack, a leader in the push for puberty blocker use in gender dysphoric patients, told the New York Times, anxiety drains away. You can see these kids being so relieved. Well, there's a reason why Dr. Norman Spack, who is a leader in the push for puberty blockers in gender dysphoric patients, and and especially puberty blockers are very young. They're 10, okay? He's pushing it. Why? Because there's a lot of money in it, guys, a lot. And next time, I will share more information about this. How much money? Let's talk numbers. This is so wrong. It smacks of human medical experimentation in Nazi prison camps, and it's got to stop. Will you help us in Oregon? Check out our show notes. We provide email addresses for every individual on the committee getting ready to vote on this, and they're going to be voting on Monday. So please copy those email addresses and let them know what you think. This is Parents' Rights. Now, please check your show notes for links pertinent to this podcast. Please consider making a monthly contribution to Parents' Rights in Education. We need your help. We are challenging our listeners and our readers, all of our supporters, to give $12 a month. If there were only 500 of you, that would tally up to $6,000 a month. Be part of that club. We call it the 12 by 12 club. A link to our website is in the show notes or go to parentsrightsineducation.com.